can assure you, Dan, too, that food is not just important for teenagers. Um, <laughs> if my physique shows anything, I am pro-food, all right? I am coming out as pro-food. <laughs> well, good morning. It is uh, good to be back with you guys. We are um, kind of at a um, coming towards the close now of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll do two more weeks in it. Um, next week, Jesus kind of brings a conclusion to everything, and then we'll revisit um, some stuff that final week um, to kind of tie up maybe a few loose ends, although I'm sure, I'm hoping that there's more, much more. I'm hoping you began this series, and where you are now has more loose ends, to be honest with you. I think questions are what fuel us in our learning and our growing, and so so uh, part of me hopes that maybe there's been something stirring, something that's been um, challenging or something different that maybe you're still kind of wrestling with. Um, and if you remember last week, right, we, we talked about Jesus in this point in the sermon is, is really approaching after having declared what the kingdom is, who is really well off in the kingdom. He's then kind of gone through these 14 triads, or we're going to actually end um, those tonight. We're going to do number, or this morning, we're going to do 13 and 14 today. But this kind of, these triads of the way he's been teaching teaching where he's been taking kind of the old way of looking at things and saying he wants to affirm that and fulfill it, but take it kind of another step further. And he's going to offer this, this kind of perspective of that, which maybe it would go awry. And so he gives us this third element of the triad, the transforming initiative, which then is how do, what do we do then? How do we then live? And last week we looked at money and wealth and, and what that does to our soul and how Jesus kind of warns us saying, listen, be careful with your wealth. Because that has a tendency to pull our hearts, to, to, to pull and kind of twist our souls in ways where it takes a stronger hold of us than we may realize. And so we ended on this whole kind of beautiful discourse where he talks about do not worry. And he talks about the birds and the lilies of the field. And he, he uses them not as an example of safety and security. Okay, so we looked at that, that the birds were food in that day. That when he talks about the flowers, he say they're here today and tomorrow they're thrown in the oven. Right? So he says it's not that that's safety and security, but it's a picture that we can live free from the oppression of anxiety. That, that wealth, that, that as wealth rises, it tends to rise our anxiety levels. And as Americans in the wealthiest, wealthiest country the world's ever seen, um, that I think is a very important teaching for us. And he's saying, don't find your security in wealth, don't find your security, your value, your being in, in possessions, but instead find it in God. Let God be the center of your affections, the God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, when anything takes the place of God, that will eventually crumble, that will lead towards your kind of demise or your destruction, because that, that thing will fail you. Right, The new car, like I said, my leather seats will get crayons and cookies and graham crackers jammed into it by my kids. That just will happen. Wealth, possessions, inherently earthly things are kind of in a process of decaying. Just, just, like, that's just what it is. That's just the cycle of the way the earth works. And so Jesus says, instead, store up treasures in heaven now, here, in this place, in this time. And so now, as, as he's been challenging us to say, listen, don't let anything take the place of God, where Jesus goes in chapter 7 now is he's saying, make sure you don't take the place of God. And we're going to look specifically at, at, um, at the role of, of interacting with one another, with conflict, with, with judgment, condemnation, all of that. And he's saying, be careful not to take the position of God. 
He's going to say it there, and then he's going to get into this crazy passage where he talks about um, throwing pearls to pigs, and we're going to unpack maybe a bit of what I think that might mean. Um, totally putting my cards on the table. That is, most scholars think that is the absolute most confusing text in probably the entire New Testament, all right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a stab at it. I think there's some important stuff that's going on beneath the surface, but I fully believe that there are many ways to interpret that text. So just kind of laying that out ahead of time. But um, I'm excited to, to see where, where this takes us. But I want us to, again, come at it with this perspective of, of Jesus just coming out of the do not worry, of don't let things take the place of God, to now challenging us to not let us take the place of God. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Let's, let's read. It says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he begins the traditional righteousness, right? The first part of the triad, he says, judge not that you not be judged. Okay, the word judge there in Greek is the word krino. And krino really doesn't actually help us to know what Jesus is saying because that word can be interpreted as making a decision, a distinction between right and left, right and wrong, black and white, whatever it is, that, that distinction. Or it can also be interpreted to how governments work. So that is like a very broad spectrum, right? It is, it is a, a judgment that, that really scans kind of the entire pers you know, perspective of what we would think with judge. And so it's important that as we kind of take that, that we have to distinguish a bit, okay, what is Jesus getting at? And I want to begin by saying a few things about what he's not saying, um, because I think that'll you know, kind of help us a bit. I don't think Jesus is saying, don't make distinctions, Right, so at the root of that word, it just means simply making a distinction between right and wrong. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Because throughout the entire text, right, he has been making distinctions. I mean, back in, in verse five, or chapter 5, right, salt and light. That, it is, that is a distinction about the way we live as salt, as light. We go on with anger, lust, divorce, all of these. He is making distinctions about the way to live. Right, like, like it is very clear. Jesus is not saying never make any distinction. He's not saying everything goes. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is not, again, saying don't make distinctions. Jesus isn't telling us to do nothing when a brother or sister is in wrong or does something destructive. Okay, in Matthew 18, just a, you know, a few chapters to the right, he's going to actually give instructions on how we handle conflict. How when, when there's disagreements of ways that we go about mediating that and making distinctions. If you, if, you, if you were listening closely, right, in verse um, 5, he says, take the log out of your own, own eye, so then you will see clearly to take the speck out. Okay, there is still an action involved. Jesus is still calling us towards something. It is not saying that because we can't judge that we then make no sort of distinction to help. I mean, the, the community of believers is kind of rooted in a context where, where we know each other well enough, intimately enough, we live honestly and authentically enough, that people can call us when we screw up, right? Like, like people know us well enough to understand when we're faking it, when we're headed in the wrong direction, whatever that is, that always, I mean, that's, that's a big piece of this community. Now, whether or not we actually live that is a different story, but that is the way God designed community. It's for us to do that. So I don't think Jesus isn't telling us to not do anything when a brother or sister is in the wrong or doing something destructive. 
So what is Jesus getting at when he says, judge not that you be not judged? I think what Jesus is getting at is he is, he is clarifying that there is a way to judge others that is outside of the kingdom bounds. And I think it really comes, I think a better word for this is condemnation. I think Jesus is saying that we as humans don't have the position of ultimate authority. That's God's role. And so we don't have the ability or the position or authority to condemn anyone. Right now, again, this plays out, I think, in, in many different ways. And look, look at the, the vicious cycle that he adds that adds um, a bit of kind of warning to it. Right? He says, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, they will be measured to you. That measure and judge right there, that's a parallelism. It's two ways of saying the same thing. Biblical authors love to do that. Uh, and so Jesus is saying, listen, when you judge, be careful, because when you condemn, when you go that route, that has a tendency to come back on you. He says, when you discount humans, when you take the place of God and begin to condemn others, he says, you're actually bringing that judgment upon yourself, right? And, and so again, this plays out in all sorts of different ways. I think this happens often um, on, you know, it, it's very simple for us to fall into this, right? We see someone do something we disagree with or live a certain way or whatever it is, and it's very easy for us to slip the robe on, to grab our gavel, and just begin kind of placing judgment on them. People we don't know, people we've never met, right? In an election cycle, this is really tempting for us. And I have, I have a tendency, and, and maybe the, the piece that this really gets me is I think online it's really easy to sit on a computer and type out condemning words about that candidate, that person that thinks differently. And we sit back and we assume that we have the perspective, that we are God, and it's very easy to fall into that temptation to begin to condemn others, to write them off. But remember the way Jesus started this sermon, right? He looks at the marginalized, the oppressed, those on the fringes of society, and he said, blessed are they. I am with them. I am on their side. You see, in the kingdom, there is no one who is beyond God's reach, right? We do not judge because we are co-sinners with others, we are there with them. And Jesus is saying, judge not, because if you, do, if you condemn, if you look down your nose at other people, if you think we, we are God, if you think I have the perspective of God or whatever it is, he says, be careful. He says, it's when you judge, when you condemn, you have the or that, that tendency is for that to come around. That measure will be judged against you. And so he says, again, what, how do we then go about this? And I think what happens is when we see people's actions and we begin to place that condemnation on them, we are exchanging action for essence. We are looking at someone and we are saying something they did defines them. That is who they are. We mistake their action for their essence, right? And maybe the best example for this, right, is my daughter, okay? She's in this stage now where she figures out she doesn't have to always tell the truth. She can get by with some stuff. Now, I look at my daughter, and, and I know her. I know her heart. I know the way God's created her. And so when she lies or whatever that is, right, I know that that is not the essence of who she is, right? Like, I have more hope in her. I have more belief in her. And so when she does that, I don't exchange that action. She's a sinner, yes, and she will continue to sin, yes. But I believe that, that God created her in his image and that, that God is working in her, restoring her. And so I don't say that she is ultimately that action. That is not her essence. 
Because the kingdom way, what Jesus does in this text is he says, have a vision for people the way God has a vision for people. He says, we don't condemn, we don't cast an eternal judgment because that's God's role. In fact, I can't think of a time when Jesus instructs followers of Jesus to judge anyone outside these walls. I cannot find a spot where Jesus talks about judging those who maybe follow a different Lord, right, who follow a different kingdom. He is gentle with them. He's harshest with the religious. He's harshest with those inside the walls. He commands us to judge one another in a way that we can uplift and and raise up each other, that we call each other towards deeper kingdom living. For sure he does that. But he is gentle. The bent towards Jesus is towards gentleness and humility with people, unless those are the ones who are casting condemnation. Then he's very harsh. He's very harsh. So he says, again, don't mistake action and essence, that we have to find a way to distinguish between moral discernment and personal condemnation. There are things that people do that are wrong, absolutely. But we approach that with the gentleness, the respect, the humility to recognize that that is not a, I don't personally condemn them for anything because that's not my role. I joked about this a few weeks ago that it took way too long for me to learn that I don't have to say everything that's in my head, right? Like I just, it took me way too long to figure that out. But man, that was a good lesson to learn, (laughs) particularly with my wife. That's a great lesson to learn. Right? And I believe at times we see the church acting in a way where maybe the church doesn't need to say everything that comes to mind. Because ultimately that's God's position. It is, to me, it is a fundamental issue of trust. It is an issue of do we trust God to be God? Because if God can be God and he's the one who lays the kind of final judgment then we, that is not our task. But we often want to argue that, and it, usually it's good-intentioned, not always, but most of the time, the majority of the time, it's very well-intentioned. But Jesus is saying, listen, judge not that you'd be not judged. That is God's role. Do we trust God to be God? And listen to the way he does then say, how do we go about this? And the transforming initiative that he kind of offers in verse 3, he says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Okay, this is absolute theater, comedy. Jesus is, is, is trying to, to draw on some humor here, this, this kind of hyper, hyperbolic teaching. He's essentially saying there's some guy with this giant log sticking out of his eye, and he's walking around, and he's like, hey, you know, you got something in your eye, right? Right? And it's like this massive log just sticking out of his eye. Like, it's absolute comedy. He's saying, how ridiculous is it for you to go, and you have this giant plank sticking out of your eye and start telling people about things in their eyes? He says, essentially, first, deal with that log. That kingdom people focus inward. They they see the ways that they have been mistaken. They recognize the ways they've broken shalom. They've committed or continued the, the brokenness of the world. And he says, deal with that. And then, right, then he says, go look at the speck in your brother's eye. But listen, to take the plank out of your own, that takes time, doesn't it? You can't shoot from the hip here. Jesus says, take, deal with the sin, the plank that's in your eye. That is a moment where it's, it's we come to communion, we confess our sins, we work and say, God, man, I need help, I'm, I'm broken, my, my, my soul is bent towards the things that aren't of you, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, I'm prone to leave this God I love. He says, deal with that. He says, focus inwardly, humbly come before God, take the log out of your own eye, He says, begin in that place with with gentleness and patience. And then he says, you will be able to see clearly. 
right? He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Because it's until we go through the process of humility, of gentleness, of patience and grace that God has poured onto us, then we go and deal graciously with others. Then after removing the plank, going through it, then we can look them in the eye and say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm screwed up too. I make mistakes. I've done the wrong thing, whatever it is. And then we begin to approach with gentleness and humility. I mean, the fundamental posture of Jesus is always gentleness with those outside the kingdom. It is toward, the, the, as having a vision toward inclusion of all, recognizing the humanity, the, the image of God in everyone, so we can never lay the condemnation on because it's not our role. It's just not. It is an issue of trust, saying, Jesus, we trust that you are the one who will have the ultimate judgment. That's not our position. Think about Jesus' teaching in the Good Samaritan, right? I think it's like Luke chapter 10. But Jesus, he tells this story, right? This man had been kind of on this. He'd been attacked by these robbers. He's thrown in this ditch on the side of the road. And Jesus says a priest walks by, religious person. A Levite walks by, right, who was the tribe of Levi, which would have been kind of the hierarchy of the, of, of the Israelites. They walk by and they avoid the man. Then Jesus says the Samaritan comes along. And I can't put into words how much Jews hated Samaritans. Like they call them just half-breeds. They believed that they had been kind of um, intermarrying and that they were kind of this, this, this group of people, this, this race, this, this nation that needed to just be cast aside. And Jesus says, a Samaritan walks by and he takes compassion. On, I mean, it would have infuriated whoever was listening to Jesus' words. Because what Jesus does in that moment is he recognizes the, the humanity and the image of God in the outcast, in the other in the one who the Jews despised. He says, in that person, that's the one who's doing kingdom work. He says, he's the one that came. He bound up the man's wounds. And then he goes over and beyond. He says he takes him into the city. He puts him up in a, in a hospital. He pays his bills to take care of this broken man. And the whole time, I, again, I can imagine the Jews and, and the Israelites just being furious that Jesus would identify with the Samaritans. Because his position, his posture is towards inclusion. It has the vision to see others as image bearers of God. You know, one of the, the truly the privileges um, of my job when I, was, when I was a pastor in Napa was I had the, the privilege to do people's funerals. Um, and I do think that is, that is one of the highest honors um, that, that I I've been asked to do. And there's a moment in that process where, where, as we're kind of beginning to take plans, we sit at a table, and I look across the table at someone who's just lost their loved one, and I ask them, tell me about so-and-so. And that meeting, that interaction right there is one of the things that's like haunted me since I've started doing that. Um, because what it has done is I have been almost, I wouldn't say obsessed, but, but close to where I think, man, what who, what will my wife say one day when she sits across that table? Because generally, when I sit across that table, the first words that come out of that person's mouth are going to indicate to me the legacy that their loved one left. Because it's the first thing when they're mourning, when they're in grief, that they say, so-and-so did this. He was this. And one of the things that I have kind of worked through, and my wife and I have said, what are the things that our family want to be marked by? And the one thing that we have kind of identified is we want to love people well. Like when I sit, when my wife, my daughters, whoever sits across that table, I want the first thing to come out of their mouth is just that, man, dad or, or Kevin, he loved people. Like he just loved people well. Because I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. 
He's saying we have a vision for people that they are, everyone is created in the image of God, no matter how distant and far we think they are from God. God has a vision to say that they are not beyond the reach of my grace. And so when we get that vision, we don't take the position of God who will cast the final judgment, but instead our bent, our, our kind of natural tendency must be towards love of the other the one we despise, the one we think differently than, the one we vote differently than, the one who we can't fathom would ever love God. We, our natural tendency must be towards love. Jesus says, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you can walk humbly in relationship with one another in loving gentleness and respect. That you then come before God, and you, you trust that God will take care of it, and we just love. The church's role is to love. That is our role. That is our role. So let's read on and see what Jesus does in this next text in, in, in verse 6. And again, your Bible probably has a heading before that. Those are added hundreds of years later. Um, really smart people miss the mark. Probably not. They probably have really good reasons to put it there. I just think it's, it's, it's misplaced. Um, they're probably really smarter than me. But in verse 6, it says this. It says, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? All right, by a raise of hand, who has ever been tempted to take all the pearls in your house and just throw them to the pigs? Right? Like, what in the world is Jesus talking about here, okay? Like, totally, again, the most confusing text, I think, in the New Testament. But if we come at it with this perspective of do we trust God to be God— I think it's going to alleviate some of that tension that we see. So the traditional righteousness here, right? Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. And then the vicious cycle is lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Okay, so the question we have to ask is who are the dogs and the pigs? Because right, if we understand who the dogs and the pigs are, that is going to shed some light into, into how we interpret this. Okay, in, um, in, uh, there's a story Jesus tells in... Um, Mark chapter 5. And in Mark 5, Jesus comes across the Sea of Galilee. He lands on the shore, and this demon-possessed man runs to him. Right? You remember this? He comes out. He's living in the tombs, which is like, oh, boy. All right? <laughs> you know, I, I imagine Jesus bracing for this encounter. The man runs to him, and, and the, the demons begin to kind of cry out to Jesus. And Jesus says, what's your name? Which is a fascinating question. Because even in this man, right, he, he seeks the humanity of the man. Right? But then you kind of see the encounter unfold, and the man says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And Jesus went wide-eyed and went, whoa, this guy's a little trippy, right? Uh, right? He's just like, absolutely crazy encounter. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, that term Legion, scholars say that there is no chance that anyone in the first century world would not, when that word was said, would not associate that with the Roman Empire, primarily in military terms, that a legion was a cohort of 5,000 soldiers. Right? And so the, the, the belief kind of goes that there were 5,000 demons inside this guy, right? And so the, the mindset is, as Jesus tells this story, he's equating kind of the legion with the Roman Empire, particularly the military. Okay? And then what happens in the story is Jesus, or the, the demons cry and say, hey, don't destroy us. Instead, send us into that herd of pigs. 
It was common belief in the first century world that they would equate pigs with the Roman Empire. Right? And even that term, and just to unpack it a bit more, even that term herd isn't the name for a group of pigs. Does anyone know the name for a group of pigs? I didn't, by the way. Right? It's, it's what I found online is it was a drift of pigs, right? Which is kind of strange. But anyway, Jesus doesn't necessarily use the word that you would for a group of pigs. A herd was a common name for military recruits. And so Jesus, again, kind of associates that even the language he says, you are dismissed into the pigs, is a bit military, right? So I think there's this connection. And historically, we have accounts of, of, um, of a first century world sacrificing pigs to Roman gods. So I think what Jesus is doing is he's equating kind of pigs and dogs to the Roman Empire, right? And dogs would have been unclean animals just like pigs were unclean animals. So they would have been considered kind of outside of God's people. Remember, this is a first century world that, that the Roman Empire is absolutely crushing the Jews, I mean, taxes at 70 to 90%. I mean, heavy-handed, kind of, you will live the Roman way or you will be crushed. And so temptation for a first century Jewish um, audience who were sitting in that crowd would have been a very tempting position to identify with the Roman Empire because that is where they would have more prestige, more wealth, more security, is if they said, okay, I give up everything of me, I want to become a Roman. That would then, that, would, that, that itself would, would elevate their social status. So the temptation for this was so strong. So Jesus says, don't give what is holy to the pigs or the dogs. Don't throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and attack you. Now, does that verse sound familiar at all? Lest them trample you underfoot. Flip over to Matthew chapter 5. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 13, when we talk about salt and light, Jesus used very specific language right before he launches into the triads, and this is the concluding triad, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, 13. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Right, this teaching on the salt is about the church being a distinct community within the world that it serves for its preservatives, it serves to flavor, bring kind of the life to the world, right? It's right there, and he says, if salt loses its saltiness, or if the Jews identify with the empire, it loses its distinction. And if it loses its distinction, just like it says in, in Matthew 7, just like it says in chapter 5, it's worthy to just be trampled under people's feet, I think what Jesus does here is he says the church must be so careful to not identify with the empire. Because the empire lives a certain way, it views people a certain way, and it says essentially that you cannot be, it's, you, cannot be you. It views people as things to be consumed. The Roman Empire would go into villages, they would essentially say Caesar is Lord, and if you said Caesar is Lord back, you'd be able to live. If not, they'd wipe you off the planet. They would destroy you because they wanted your stuff, they wanted your land, they wanted you. And so Jesus is saying, listen, don't lose your distinctive nature. Don't give the holy things, which he goes on and says, ask, seek, and knock. I think that's, that's Jesus' way of saying your prayers, your loyalty, your pursuit of God, right? And then he goes on to this discourse where he says, you know, if you know how to give good gifts, Right, then how much more does your Father in heaven know how to give, give, give good gifts? He's essentially saying, I am worthy to be followed. 
I know what you desire. I know what you need. That was the text in the do not worry. He's saying, I understand the deepest desires of your soul. He says, I get that. And so I am worthy to be following. He says, don't lose your distinctiveness. And church, if I can be honest, this is where I get, I get really nervous when we start mixing faith and American nationalism. When we start missing, like, not that we can't be patriots and be proud of our nation and be involved, and I think that's absolutely what we're supposed to do, but when those two collide, I think we have to be very, very careful. Because to be honest, America looks a whole lot more like Rome in the scriptures than it does Israel. And that's a difficult, and some of you may disagree with me on that, and that's, that's okay, I'm totally fine with that. But if you read them hand in hand, there, there's some, it's, it's tough. Right? The goal of the kingdom is not the American dream. The goal of the kingdom is a distinct community who lives within, in exile. We, we identify far more with the image of Israel in exile than we do with Israel as the chosen nation. That, that, that we as a church don't have, a, we don't have a, a nation state. Instead, we are a distinct community, different than the way of the Roman Empire, different than the way the American dream works. And to keep our distinctiveness, we have to hold to the teachings of Jesus, which many times will deter away from maybe the way of the world. We live distinct. Jesus says, do not give what is holy to the dogs and the pigs. He says, instead, put your trust in God, because God is the leader of our kingdom. He is the one who is embracing, who is initiating, who's brought the kingdom of God here. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand here, and it will be one day fully inaugurated. He says that is what you are working towards. Do we pray for our nation? Absolutely. Do we pray for our leaders? Absolutely. Do we vote the way we feel Jesus leading to? Absolutely. But our hope is not in the American dream. Our hope is not ultimately in America's flourishing. We mourn sin. We mourn brokenness. We pray for our leaders. But our hope is in the kingdom of God who's establishing itself. That is our hope as a church. That is where our distinctives are. And listen to the way he ends kind of all of this in chapter 7. Right, the famous golden rule in verse 12, he says, So whatever you wish the others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. He says, you could live, and, and, and you could, if, if you just live with how you would want to be treated, then live that way, and that will summarize all of the Old Testament. He says, that is the way, as the church, our fundamental posture is towards love, towards grace, towards forgiveness, towards patience. He says, that from that posture, we have the vision to see people for who they are, image bearers of God, regardless of what we think of their political views, the way they use their money, the way they make decisions socially. Regardless of that, we come from a posture of grace and forgiveness because we recognize the plank in our own eye. That we have been forgiven of much, so therefore we forgive much. We trust God to be the one to sort things out. That is not our role. The role of the church is to be the distinct community of grace and love. That is our role. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells this story um, where he's, he's actually, I'm sorry, John tells the story of Jesus, and he had just been kind of up on the Mount of Olives praying, and he comes down, and he goes to the synagogue, and he begins to sit down and teach the crowd. So as he's teaching the crowd, he, he's got this group kind of gathered around him, and as he's teaching, this disturbance kind of rises up in the back of the room. And it kind of distracts everyone. I imagine everyone's head kind of just churns to identify, like, what is going on? What is this racket that's happening and as he looks back, he sees this, this kind of small mob that were dragging this woman against her will. 
And this woman, I imagine, is screaming. She's probably crying. She's humiliated. Right? She's been absolutely just made a mockery of, made a pawn in what Jesus identifies as the scribes and the Pharisees. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they drag this woman up. They put her right in the center of the room in front of the entire crowd as this kind of spectacle. And they look at Jesus and they say, this woman's been caught in adultery. And seeking to kind of condemn her, they say, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery and this woman deserves to die because in the law of Moses, it would have allowed that kind of punishment. And so this whole crowd now is coming, this woman who I imagine is broken, who is already as a woman kind of pushed down by society, and now she's been embarrassed, been used, and she's just weeping in front of this crowd with her life hanging in the balance. And everyone's eyes kind of shift to Jesus. And I love Jesus because he kind of takes it in the situation, and he kind of, he pauses in order to kind of gather his thoughts. And I love it. He says he, he bends down and he begins to write in the sand, and we have no idea what he wrote. But he bends down, he begins to kind of just write in the sand as he thinks, as the tensions are rising in the room. This woman shaking with fear at what is the judge, which is essentially the role that the Pharisees and the scribes put Jesus in, what is he going to say? Because if he condemns the woman and says, yes, stone her, then all of Jesus' teaching on kind of grace and forgiveness a bit go out the window. But if, if, if he then says, no, we don't stone her, then the scribes and the Pharisees kind of win. They say, listen, you don't follow the law of Moses. And so Jesus, looking at this woman, he straightens up and he begins to say these familiar words. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And I imagine just kind of like almost a hush in the room. As this woman who, who didn't hear condemnation, didn't hear words that, yes, she was in sin. She was doing something she shouldn't have. But Jesus sees beyond that, looks into the woman, recognizes the woman as an image bearer, as someone who is, is sacred to God, sees the woman, he says, let him who's without sin throw the first stone. And so slowly, rocks begin to hit the ground. They begin to walk away. They begin to leave until what we see in the scene is now it is just Jesus and this woman. And I imagine this woman knew of Jesus at this point. Like Jesus had reached a sort of social status at this point. And so he begins, and he, as he sees this woman, the woman, I'm sure, is beginning to feel relief that maybe she's going to live to see another day. But then she remembers that this Jesus is the one who claims to be God. Who then, in that moment, I imagine the fear kind of quickly strikes her again because Jesus didn't leave. Jesus is the one who could still pick up a rock, who is without sin, who could then sentence her to death. And as, as, as that fear again wells up, Jesus looks at the woman. He says, woman, where are they? He says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And fighting back tears, fighting to be able to speak, she says, no one has condemned me, Lord. And Jesus, with gentleness and patience, looks at the woman and says, go now. Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. For Jesus... He never gives up on one. He never gives up on the woman. He, he does not associate the action with the essence of the woman. Jesus has a vision to see this woman as someone who's sacred to God, who's created in the image of God, who says, I won't go the way of the religious establishment. I won't go the way of Rome and use you as something to be consumed so that I can then elevate my status. Instead, he gives a distinct response, diffuses the situation, sets the woman free, doesn't condemn her, but he also adds, go now and leave your life of sin. Because ultimately, Jesus is still for us, for our transformation. 
that to just forgive sin and not call us to something else wouldn't be much help either. But Jesus looks on the woman with patience, with joy, with with love in his eyes, and he says, then neither do I condemn you. Church, that is the posture that we should have. That is the way that we should view others. The way Jesus looked on this broken woman who really had no choice or really left to her own, says, then neither do I condemn you. Church, may we embrace the love of God in a way that it goes out from us. May we begin to recognize that our judgment, our role is not to condemn, not to look down on others. May we remain and have our distinct flavoring, our distinct difference, that the love of God in us, as Paul says, it controls us. It compels us to live, that we no longer view them according to the flesh but as according to God who has created them and have the vision of God to see others the way God sees them. Church, that is our call. That is our posture. That the way of the kingdom is the way of grace, of love, of inclusion, of hope, of joy, of looking at others the way God sees others because, again, God looked at us like that one day. When we needed him to look on us with love and grace, he looked at us with love and grace so that we go out and look with love and grace on others. That is our bent. That is our posture. So church, may you be challenged by that. May you be challenged with the hope to see people the way God sees people. May you have a renewed vision for the world and for others so we can love others differently. Will you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, Lord, God, we thank you for seeing us the way you see others. God, we thank you for your love, for your grace, for communion that we celebrated earlier, for forgiveness, for patience. Lord God, at one point we needed that desperately and you gave that to us. And so, Lord, as we go, as we go out and love others, may you give us a renewed vision for people. Give us patience. Give us grace. Lord, give us the, 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 the know-how to love people well to be bent towards inclusion and hope and joy. And because, God, that is the posture we take. And so, Lord, help us with that. We do need your help in that. Remind us of your love for us. God, remind us of that. So, Lord, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd-